All right, Storehouse, if you can please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is out of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 to 25, and it reads, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. My name is Mark Ode. I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event you didn't catch Tony, we're going to find ourselves in the New Testament, and we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, and we're looking at verses 23 to 25. And so as you open or load your Bible, I'd love to just dig right into our time. I don't know if you are a reader, if you read books or articles or online news, whatever it is, uh, writer Jake uh, Matter of The Atlantic wrote an article recently titled, The Misunderstood Reason Millions of Americans Stopped Going to Church. It's the longest title ever, but that's the article that he wrote not too long ago. The Misunderstood Reason Millions of Americans Stopped Going to Church. And Matter writes this, it should be on the notes, he goes on to say, 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the past 25 years. That's something like 12% of the population. And it represents the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history. Americans who were once a part of churches but have since left, the process of leaving was gradual. And in many cases, they didn't realize it was even happening until it already had. In his article, he goes on to suggest that the reason or the primary reason people have left the church isn't simply, I want to be clear about this, isn't simply due to spiritual abuse or domineering leadership. If you are in the world of Christian news, whether it's through podcasts or social media, over the last several years, you've heard this increase and rise of domineering leadership and spiritual abuse and hundreds of not thousands of people have been hurt, crazy hurt, and have left the church, and that's damaged the witness of the church. It's been a damage to the witness of the gospel. And so that is real, and, and, and that has happened, and that has been very loud on a variety of media platforms. Yet what Metter is suggesting, along with other writers, is that's actually not the only reason. In fact, that's not the primary reason. The primary reason has been because many Christians have shaped their lives outside of biblical community, outside of the gospel. What he goes on to argue for is that what shapes this is our attraction to production and consumption that the way of the American life is to constantly be producing. The 70-hour work weeks, you're constantly on call. You get home only to do more work. You get home only to bring work with you. Constant consumption, whether it's through social media or a variety of other channels where you're just stuck to a screen, whether it's an iPad or your TV, and you're just gorging and binging on content. If you consider, for instance, uh, watching any kind of streaming service, right, one of the things that we even tend to joke about is binge watching, where it's cool to sit for several hours and plow through content. The idea here is that we invest a great deal in consumption. 
Last week, one of the questions that I asked that could be a cringe-worthy experience for many Christians is, what is the gospel? And we examined a couple of answers that we tend to give. Well, one of the other questions that could be just as painfully awkward is, where have you been? Right? If you haven't been to church in a number of weeks or a couple of months and you come to the Sunday gathering and you see a friend and they say hi and they hug you and man, how are you doing? It's so good to see you. Where have you been? That's just awkward. Or you go to a community group and it's been a while since you've been to uh, your CG and you walk in and they're asking, man, it's so good to see you. Man, where is it that you have been? And it's just really, really awkward because you don't want to have to say, actually, I chose brunch over the benediction. I chose catching up on work over communion. I chose sleep over my sanctification. I chose not wanting to have this awkward exchange over adoration. And to be fair, there are these moments and there are these seasons where it's difficult to get to one of the gatherings, right? Kids are sick. You're out of town. Something has happened that providentially hinders you from being at the gathering. We're not talking about those. We're talking about gradual moments that eventually shape the way we live. And so what are the results of these gradual moments? Well, according to the data... The result of this is loneliness. This is one of the biggest epidemics in our culture. So many more people are feeling extremely lonely and isolated and pulled away from one another. One of the other results is workism, where it's common, it's normal, it's celebrated to dive into 70-hour work weeks, where you stay late at work, where you bring work home, where that's just the norm. And the church has almost come alongside what that American success looks like. Some of the other results have been confusion where individuals don't necessarily know what it looks like to belong because they're feeling lonely or they're overworked or a variety of other things that are happening. Now here's the irony. The irony is that the church is the antidote to all these reasons. The church is the antidote to the reason why people are leaving. Some studies suggest that most people would return and or attend your church, our church, our community group if you would just invite them. That's some of the sociological data that has been coming out recently, and that's incredibly disarming. That means it's not this conversation centered around philosophy or apologetics. It's actually just being willing to go to my friend, my neighbor, my coworker, and saying, do you want to join me to church today? That's really disarming. And so when we speak about biblical community, when we speak about our gatherings, one of the questions that I think would be helpful to to ask is, what is it exactly that we're inviting people into? Are we just saying, hey, come to a service? What is it that we're inviting people into? And what we're inviting them into is meaningful relationships. The fruit of biblical community, here's your main idea, the fruit of biblical community is personal transformation. The fruit of biblical community is personal transformation. It is this that fights against production and consumption. 
We're in the second week of our current series, The Church, Who We Are. This is a series on our four values here at Storehouse McAllen, our values, what we do, what we're about. And so today we're examining biblical community. This is our second value. Last week was gospel centrality, and today it is biblical community. So what I'd like to do is pray, and then we'll dig into Hebrews 10. God, we thank you for the gathering. God, we thank you for community and meaningful friendships and relationships. God, we thank you for the opportunity where we get to sing praises to your name, where we get to exalt the person and work of Jesus and where we are shaped by your grace. Therefore, as we consider your word this afternoon, um, as we consider your word this afternoon, would you be at work in us? Would you be at work among us? Uh, driving us to see Jesus as big and beautiful, but at the same time driving us to one another so that we would do all the same in pointing one another to Jesus. May your word this afternoon be sweeter than honey. Change us where we need to be changed. Convict us where we need to be convicted. And so we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, to give you a little bit of context on Hebrews 10, uh, if you haven't read it, the author here has devoted about nine and a half chapters to unpacking the truth of the person and work of Jesus. It's been very dense. He's constantly been looking at the Old Testament to refer to what he's talking about here. And so for about nine chapters, he's been unpacking the person and work of Jesus. And here in chapter 10, he transitions from doctrine to application. He transitions from doctrine to application. And so the context in Hebrews 10 is the gathering. Now, when he's talking about the gathering, it's not simply the Sunday gathering, but it is also when we gather in community. And that's really where we're headed today. Right here at Storehouse, we value community. We put a lot of eggs in the basket that is community groups and discipleship groups so that we would be shaped by God's word, so that we would know him, ourselves, and one another better. And so in verse 23 of Hebrews 10, the author gives us the purpose of community. This is found in verse 23. Let's look at it briefly. He goes on to say, <clears throat> Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The purpose of biblical community isn't that you're joining a club. And if you're not in community, hopefully this gives you a little bit of clarity. You're not joining a club. See, a club is based on chemistry and interests, but biblical community is not a club. It's something that's not centered on, uh, on chemistry, but it is centered around Christ. Biblical community is the outworking of the one another verses found in the New Testament. Biblical community serves as an invitation to something that the world simply cannot provide you with. In biblical community, our desire is to know God and to be known. This goes for new and seasoned Christians where we know God better. This goes for non-Christians in hopes that they would come to know Jesus. This is where we learn about God, where you learn more about yourself, your heart, your desires, what wages war within you, all the while while hearing and learning about one another, your sin, your struggle, and your success. When it comes to biblical community, it isn't therapy, it's not a social club, but a family of believers being transformed by the power of the gospel as they live life together. 
You see, the world preaches that you are what you do, but the statistics show that you're only as valuable if you're producing or consuming. The world preaches that you are what you feel, yet the statistics show that there's a great epidemic of loneliness, isolation, and increasing self-harm. On the other hand, the gospel preaches that who you are is defined by who God says you are. Sinner and sufferer turned saint by the grace of God. It is based on what he has done for you. It is based on your nature changing as a result of him saving you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what not only saves us, but also sustains us. It is the gospel, it is because of the gospel that we, as the author says, hold fast. So let's specifically look at verse 23. He opens by saying, let us hold fast. What sustains biblical community isn't good advice, but good news. The promises of God for you and one another. It's not the display of something new, but a fresh reminder of what is true, that God entered into time, space, and history to save sinners like you and me. And he opens up verse 23 by saying, let us. In other words, this isn't something for only the individual. This is for us as a church community. This is for us, particularly in the context of community. How are we to hold fast to the confession? We do it together. We hold fast together. If you're familiar with the phrase hold fast, it it actually goes all the way back. Clearly it's in scripture, but if we bring it into modern times briefly, it goes back to the context of sailors at sea. And the phrase hold fast seems obvious, but when a sailor would hear the word fast, to them it means make the rope tight. They're about to walk into some crazy waves, they're about to go into some crazy storms, and so when they would scream or yell at one another, hold fast, they would pull that rope really tight so that they would maintain course as they are going into the storm. It was around this time where many sailors began tattooing their knuckles with the words, hold fast. The idea was a reminder that no matter what we're about to walk into, we're gonna tighten the rope and hold on. We're not gonna let go. So when he says, let us hold fast to the confession, it is the gospel that you and I are gonna hold fast together on for the purpose of not wavering. In community, there is preservation. When it gets difficult, when it gets hard, when that sin that you're wrestling with is just too strong for you, it is in the presence of others where your faith can be preserved. See, it's not about how strong you are individually, it's about how strong we are communally. Jude goes on to write, have mercy on those who doubt, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. See, in community, if you and I are going to hold fast to the confession of the gospel without wavering, that means me, I am willing to jump into the mess that is your life to help you pull out of it, to fight that sin. That's how much Not only we love one another, but that is how much of value the gospel is. 
See, in our time, and our culture, we're so tempted to separate theological convictions from the way we live. Over and over again, maybe you hear this, that theology doesn't matter, it's just about living a good life, but what it tells us here in Hebrews 10, that if we are going to hold fast to this confession, there is this willingness in me as a result of God's work through me that I'm gonna dive into the mess of your life. One writer goes on to say it this way, it is never a good time to sacrifice for others, it is always the right time to sacrifice for others. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4 says, two are better than one. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. If two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You and I can't hold fast alone. You and I are too tempted to drift. Left to ourselves, we make small, gradual decisions that lead us to drift, that lead us to forget. But the author says that we can do this together. He goes on to say, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If the purpose is to hold fast to our faith, to our confession, we are assured that we can do so because it is God who is faithful. God is the one who is faithful to sustain. Holding fast to the confession isn't simply thinking deeply on the truths of God. It is that, but it's not only that, but it is us reading, devoting, and speaking the wonderful promises of God to one another because he is faithful. That is what you and I need when we're in community. You and I need to remind one another of the good, faithful, and wonderful promises of God. As we examined gospel centrality last week, one of the things that we observed was that you and I are extremely forgetful. And so it's not just a matter of self-will to preach the gospel to myself. I need brothers and sisters to speak that truth into me. This gospel-centric truth is saturated in the life of the church through community. When the author of Hebrews writes, let us, and in this passage, not just our section, in this passage, he uses that phrase three times. He's making a point, he's emphasizing, <clears throat> he's emphasizing that the path to know God better and the path to being known is never one that is traveled alone. No matter what your experience is, no matter what your intellect is, no matter what your failures, fear, or emotional EQ is, the path to knowing God and being known is through community. And so in the context of this biblical, biblical community, we see the fruit of personal transformation. In the family of God, there is real change. And there's real change because you and I are, uh, we are a people who can freely admit that we're in a process, not simply to become better, but to be truly human, to be more like Jesus. That is what the gospel does in us. That is what the gospel does through us as a community of believers, as a family of God. The purpose of community is to hold fast to our confession. 
Well, as we transition into verse 24, we move from the purpose to the practice of community. And this is where knowing God and being known rubs with our individualistic fibers. You see, you and I value individualism. And in community, we're exposed. A lot of things are exposed in community. Our hands are exposed because we want to clench tightly to our preferences, to our individualistic needs. Our hearts are exposed because someone's going to poke and prod and provoke us in a way that's going to call us out, make us think, and make us uncomfortable. And so let's consider what the author says. This is verse 24. And let us, there's that phrase, let us. Not, hey, figure this out. Hey, this is all on you. Hey, make sure you do this. He goes on to say, let us... Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. If transformation is to take place in biblical community, there must be consideration. And the word consider here means to think deeply with great concentration, to think with intentionality about what we do when we gather. And so when we gather in community or discipleship groups, there is intentionality, not simply because of interests. Interests change and they fade. Intentionality means that my whole self is present with you. It's rain. It's awesome. Sorry. That's a good thing. It's been a while. It has been a while. All right. I'm going to go on a tangent because I have all these comments. Anyway, here we go. So when we gather in community and discipleship group, there's intentionality, right? There's intentionality because my whole self is present with you. My whole self is present with you in the good, in the bad, the irritating, and the ugly. See, it's only when we consider one another that we are fully present with each other. And so he says, man, when we consider, we stir one another up. What does stirring one another up mean? It means to agitate one another. Here's an illustration. Uh, I don't know if you like salads, uh, but uh, vinaigrettes are cool. If you're like, that's not cool, they are. They're super cool. And there's a bunch of different ways to make vinaigrette. Uh, you're gonna need three ingredients. Here it is. You're gonna learn how to cook at church also. So you need a fat, an acid, and a binder. I can tell you about all that later, right? Those are the three things that you need. Now, to make a vinaigrette, a lot of people do it different ways. You can throw these ingredients in a blender or a food processor, and it, 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 it combines them all, right? Some people throw them in a Tupperware, and they just shake them really, really hard, and it makes the vinaigrette. Or you can learn how to make vinaigrette the way I learned how to make vinaigrette. And so when I was living in North Texas, uh, my pastor, before he became a pastor, my friend Cody was a chef in Houston. And so I would go to Cody's house a couple times a week and we would talk Jesus and we would read our Bibles and I'd get to hang out with his family. And so this one night I go over to Cody's house and he says, hey, tonight we're going to make a grilled salmon salad and so we need to make a vinaigrette. I said, all right, I I don't know how to do that. And he goes, don't worry about it. I'm going to hook you up. So Cody gives me this bandana. And I thought I was going to be doing this blindfolded. And he says, no, no, I need you to put it over your forehead. And I was like, all right, cool. Like, just like Rambo. So I put this bandana over my head. And he says, hey, your gym gains are going to experience a whole different kind of burn. And so what we end up doing is we put the fat and we put the binder, the thing that's going to combine all these ingredients, we put it in this bowl. 
And with my right hand, he gives me uh, a mixer and he says, you're going to stir these ingredients. With your left hand, I'm going to give you oil and you're going to slowly drip it into the pan so that everything can combine. It's called emulsifying. You're going to make these ingredients into one. But you need to work this bowl in order for these ingredients to become one. And it was at that point that I realized why he gave me the bandana. My forearm is cramping. I'm like sweating like I'm at the gym and Cody's just standing there as I'm mixing all of these ingredients and slowly pouring the oil because if I pour too much and too fast it like ruins the whole thing and I really just wanted to do it in a blender at that point but Cody wouldn't let me do it anyway the whole idea of doing all of this was to emulsify these ingredients so that they would become one unit When the author of Hebrews writes that we are to stir up one another, it is to say that the way in which you and I are going to grow, the way in which you and I are truly going to be one unit, the way in which you and I are truly going to be known is through agitation. Without agitation, there is no transformation. Without friction, there is no true formation. And that rubs against our individualistic desires. You don't like that. You don't like being rubbed the wrong way. Yet if we want meaningful and personal transformation, stirring one another up is part of the process. But let me be clear, it's not random. So if you're that individual, it's just like, I just tell you like it is, that's just who I am. That's not what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Because he goes on to say in a moment that the purpose of this is stirring one another up, the purpose of emulsifying, the purpose of agitation is for love and good works, not so that you can flaunt your personality. By way of another example, let me give you a space in community where knowing God and being made known is best cultivated. Confession of sin. Confession of sin. When you and I confess our sin to one another, we realize in that moment that grace is our only hope. When you and I confess our sin to one another, what we need to be reminded of in that moment is the gospel. And if I'm doing the confessing, if I'm honest, sometimes that's the hardest thing to be reminded of. That's why I need you. In confession, as you remind me of the gospel, I'm able to extend the same grace that you just gave me to remind you of the same truth you were just preaching to me. Confession of sin is really hard. That's no joke. It's really hard for several reasons. Vulnerability, what are people gonna say, what are people gonna think, there's tons of them. However, as one of our CG leaders put it yesterday, we had this workshop. He goes on to say, without confession, there can truly be no change. And if there is no confession, if we do not confess our sin to one another, we are saying that there's nothing about us to change. Referencing from 1 John 1, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, that is Jesus, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. exhortation to one another, stirring one another up. Exhortation isn't because we don't love one another. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's because we actually want to see one another flourish and thrive in our walk with Jesus and our walk with one another. 
stirring one another up is done with a heart for the other person to know God and know him better. That's the motivation. Here at Storehouse, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, y'all are amazing at community, at getting together and hanging out. I love numbers and our data proves it. So about 85% of our covenant members are involved in some form of community group or discipleship group. That is excluding people who attend these groups that are not a part of our church and people who attend these groups that are not members yet. That's a really, really healthy number. So praise God, good job, Sir Hells. While at the same time, according to our data, Confession of sin is that thing we don't want to veer into. We don't want to walk into it too much. That doesn't mean we don't do it. But collectively, it's like, just pray for me and I'll pray for you. I got to go. We're not as strong in this area. Could we be hindering our own sanctification? Are we hindering some of our transformation as a result of not confessing sin to one another? Let us not stir one another up for the purpose of being those people, but to urge one another to the cross of Christ, to urge one another that your sin has been forgiven through the blood of Jesus, to urge one another towards the kind of transformation that only the Holy Spirit can provide. When we gather in community, It's a time and it's an opportunity for everyone to speak truth into one another. To hear truth spoken into each other. As I mentioned, when we stir one another up, it's not because we don't love one another, quite the opposite. It is because we love one another. And love isn't easy, especially when it comes to people that you don't like. But in community, you need to know, we need to know how we love why we should love. What are specific ways in which we can love one another? In community, we need to learn that so that we would then turn and love others. So we must consider how to stir one another up, how to agitate. It's a holy agitation, we can call it that. It's this holy agitation. We need to learn how to do that. In addition to that, he goes on to say that we are to encourage one another. So it's not just agitation that happens in community. It's also encouragement. And this is building up of one another. For many, it's really easy to be that person who looks at all the things that need to be done differently. And maybe you're that person, you're like, oh, I love exhorting people, right? I could totally tell you what's wrong with you, right? Like maybe you're that individual who's just ready to go, but then you read Hebrews 10 and he says, and encourage one another. See, because there are those Christians and you might be that who's like, man, I'm really good at stirring one another up. I don't know if it's the love and good works, but I'll totally agitate that individual, even in your best intentions, even if you're right. The question is, do you encourage one another? The New Testament has over 50 one another verses, right? When you walk through, for example, 1 John, I think it's a ton of love one another, love one another, love one another. We see ways in which we encourage one another. We see ways in which we admonish one another. 
do we encourage one another just as much as we exhort each other? And when we encourage one another, it means that we're caring for one another's hearts. Well, how do we care for one another's hearts? Revert back to verse 23, holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We remind one another of the promises of God to each other. We remind one another of the truth of God for each other. It's not just good advice, it's good news. We give one another loving words. We pray for one another, we encourage one another. Proverbs 18 says this, and let me preface with this, right? It's not just about what you say, it's also what you don't say. So he goes on to say, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. The way in which we encourage one another will actually bring some sort of life to dry bones. When you just need that truth, and here's one of the phrases I hear a lot, especially in this last season, I just feel like I can't catch a break. And so an encouraging word brings life to dry bones. See, a family of faith is rooted firmly in the gospel, unwavering in the good news of Jesus, gripped and convinced by what Jesus has done for them. Biblical and meaningful community is the something that the world longs for. It is the something that the world cannot provide. We looked at John 17 a couple of weeks ago, and here's one of the things that Jesus says. The glory, he's praying to the Father, and he's praying for, uh, for the disciples and ultimately the church, and he says, the glory that you have given me, I give to them, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He's saying, man, as you love one another, it's going to forecast to the world that I was actually sent to save you, that I entered into time, space, and history. And so what the author tells us here is that as we stir one another up, as we encourage one another, there is fruit. And so the practice of community cultivates fruit. That is love and good works. This is how we love one another. This is how we encourage one another. This is good works, how we serve one another in the context of gatherings, how we serve others in our neighborhood, at the office, at work, in our classrooms. We have a lot of teachers. The way in which you love your students, all of that is good works. Check it. The individuals that are most transformed in biblical community are the ones who are convinced that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are the ones who are convinced that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. For many, when that doesn't exist or it's vague or it's faint or it's rejected, community will always be something more of a function than a family. Author Joseph Hellerman says this, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. Community is not a program. It is a conviction that is lived out to know God and one another better. Inviting others and one another into personal transformation through community. 
So let us stir one another up. Let us encourage one another. Some of you probably need to grow in the stirring part, the agitation, and then there are some of you who need to grow in encouragement. And if you're not really sure where you need to grow, one of the things that I think is important is when it comes to encouraging, if you think more about what other people need to do, that's probably an area where you need to grow in encouragement, right? The practice of community produces personal transformation. And so we've looked at two, well, we've, uh, we've seen two observations, the purpose of community and the practice of community. Now, finally, let's get to the priority of community. This is the second half of verse 24 into 25. He goes on to say, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. At the end of the day, when it comes to community, here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to orient your life around the church. I'm asking you to orient your life around the church. And here's the main reason, and it's a practical reason. You're going to orient your life around something anyway. So why not the church? And when I say the church, I mean the people of God, not this building, it's not even ours. We're not even here outside of Sunday, right? So clearly I don't mean the building. The people of God. The author talks about habit. Don't neglect to meet as is the habit of some. Habits are formative and they're decisive. You may have some habits that you do without even knowing, but at one point they were decisive. I'm gonna try this, I'm gonna do this, and you began to develop these habits. Gathering on Sunday and in community particularly to the best of our abilities are going to be what best shapes our convictions. When it comes to the Sunday gathering, this is primarily, not only, primary proclamation and celebration. When we gather in community outside of the Sunday gathering, it is for formation and transformation. So let's orient our lives around the church. That doesn't mean that you're going to live at the church. That just means you're shaping your life around the gatherings. The author goes on to say that the day is drawing near, and so there's a little bit of urgency to the invitation of biblical community here. In other words, here's what he's saying. It's only gonna get harder. Let's look at the end of verse 25. He says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's only gonna get harder, right? If you orient your life around something else, gathering in community will only become increasingly difficult. There's that gradual separation where eventually your schedule just takes over and, man, I'm swamped with X, Y, Z, all the things that we addressed earlier on. It's only going to get harder if we orient our lives around something else. Additionally, it's only going to get harder because the, cult, the culture is only getting more hostile. So there's urgency to bring, to fold, to invite others into community so that we would see personal transformation. And so with that being said, here are two warnings. You might be the, these two, and if you're not, praise God, that's awesome. The two warnings are for two kinds of individuals. The first one is the Lone Ranger. This is for the one who thinks they don't need community, who the one who has it figured out, the one who rejects help, the one who rejects people. If that's you, you get picked every single day by Satan. How's it working for you? In addition to that, the Lone Ranger is sometimes those individuals who fear being known. And I get it, community is hard. It's messy. It's not very neat. 
But here would be my encouragement. At some point, man, I want you in community so that you would be known, so that you are loved and reminded of the truth of God for you. And at some point, if we're just being honest and practical, at some point, you're not loving your neighbor. On a sermon in this, Pastor Sam Storm says this. Isolated, Lone Ranger Christians who think they can make it on their own and they don't need the local church are destined to fail. Those who dismiss all this one-anothering stuff and this call for mutual encouragement are worse than fools. Get in community for the sake of personal transformation, not a program. The second is, I don't, I don't know how to label this. So it's like this weird title. I just titled it The Faithfully Proud. That's terrible. Anyway, here's what I mean by that. Some of you are in community, or let me, let me back up. The reminder here is that if you're in community, you are in community so that you would know God and be known. You are not in community because we take perfect attendance here. In other words, if that's you, be watchful. Do not let your heart grow proud in thinking that you're better than those who are struggling in community or struggling with community or struggling to be in community. Don't think you are better than them just because you attend perfectly. Listen to me, that's not fruitful, that's pharisaical. So I guess it'd be legalistic. Biblical community is where the fruit of the gospel is both cultivated and celebrated. And if all of these stats and all of these numbers teach us anything about the way people are treating the church, it could be very dangerous. There are some Christians, right? There are some Christians who treasure counselors over Christ. Now now that's super like, uh, what's the word? I don't know, not not a lot of people are gonna like that. But here's what I mean by that. Counselors have their place, counselors are good, they're needed, man, especially when they're helping you work through a significant amount of things, that's good. What I'm talking about are Christians who reject the church, who reject Christ because this is their Christ. That's destined to fail. And if it's not that, it's Christians who choose complaint over confession. Individuals who come to your group, who you meet with on one-on-one, or who are gonna drop a ton of things. They're gonna drop all of the things they got going on, and they're gonna say, man, I'm so glad I confessed. No, you complained. You spoke a great deal about other people. You spoke a great deal about what others need to do better. You spoke a great deal about other people doing other things differently than you but there was no admission of sin. Sometimes Christians choose uh, or uh, look at the church more like a chaplain than a community of faith. And what I mean by that is oftentimes Christians will be like, man, I just need that one person. I need a priest. I need a pastor. I need someone to talk to. And they'll go. They'll dump a bunch of things and be like, okay, they'll receive some counsel. They'll receive like some next steps. Hey, get folded in. And then they bounce. Look, the church is not a vending machine. Storehouse McAllen is not a vending machine. We are a gospel-centered family that makes disciples who know and live like Jesus. It's the priority of community that shapes what is essential for the Christian. So how do we guard against 
The article by Jake Metter, he's referencing a book called The Great Dechurching. So how do we guard against the great dechurching? How do we protect from the great dechurching? It is through the invitation and formation of meaningful biblical community. The Sunday gathering is the most essential gathering for the church, but it is not the only gathering. Practically speaking, the Sunday gathering cannot capture all of the one another verses, but biblical community can. And so as we close, Christian, what tugs at you today when it comes to community? Some of you may ask, man, when it comes to community, is it high reward or is it high risk? Yes. So what do you hold fast to? And how's it going as you walk by yourself? And if you're in community, praise God. Keep going, keep going. Don't forget to invite the person next to you. But whatever tugs at your heart that's more individualistic than personal transformation, let me just invite you to confess that before the Lord. And if you're not a Christian, love that you're here. Thank you for being here. Let me just give you this cool, fresh reminder that we are a people in process, recovering hypocrites who serve a perfect redeemer. And you are invited to come and know him. His name is Jesus. It is he who is faithful. And he is ready to pardon any sinner who turns to him in faith. Church, let us not forget that personal transformation is the fruit of biblical community. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gathering. I thank you for our church. With so many in community living life together, it is because of your work, of your grace in us. Father, it is a conviction in value, not on paper, but in practice. And for that, we praise you and we thank you. Lord, we confess that while community comes natural for many of us, the practice of it is sometimes deflected when we neglect to confess sin to one another, when we neglect to love one another with your promises, or when we neglect in simply gathering together because our heart's affections rest elsewhere. Forgive us. By your grace, forgive us. But in that same vein, give us the grace to change so that we would come and know Jesus better and live like him in community with one another and for the world to see.